The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome. Uh, thanks uh, for all of you who are new. Thanks for uh, sitting in on some of our, our family uh, fun that we got to have. Uh, we'd love to meet you. We'd love to connect with you. Our mission as a church is to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him here in the city of Charlotte. And so we would love for you to be a part of that. We'd love to answer any questions you have. We'd love to come alongside of you as you seek to, to explore what it means to follow Jesus or to follow Jesus or to take your next step in following Jesus, whatever that might look like. We'd love to uh, meet you, get to know your story, answer any questions you have. The easiest way to do that is to fill out that blue connect card to drop it off in the lobby. We have a gift for you. We'd love to shake your hand and hear your name and uh, hear how we can help. Let me uh, pray for us. And then we got some work to do today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for uh, the fact that we are sealed by your Holy Spirit. And that even though our hearts are prone to wander and run and go every which way looking for life, Lord, that you hold us fast. What an incredible gift. What an undeserved mercy that you save us by your grace, you keep us by your grace, you sanctify us by your grace, and you help us grow into spiritual and emotional health by your grace. We need you. We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, uh, you're going to want it. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the ends of the rows. Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be looking at 38 chapters of Scripture today. Very, very excited. We read a little bit to fool you, and then we're going to talk about a lot. Uh, Genesis chapter 12. We are in the middle of kind of a mini-series and a bigger series talking about the four essential movements of emotional health. The four movements that we have to take in order to go forward into emotional health and maturity. And the first movement, we said, was to go up, to bring our emotional hearts and our lives before the Lord to say, God, here's where I'm at. Here's what's going on to, to bring God into that and to let him redeem it and change it. And then last week we said the second movement was to go in, to take off the false self and the facade and to show God, hey, this is where I'm honestly at, to not hide before God, before ourselves, before others, but to actually let people in and let God in to do the deep work of redemption. And this week I want to talk about our third movement, and that is this, we must go back to go forward. We must go back to go forward. I want us to look from the scriptures how seeing, owning, and asking God to redeem our past is a key to moving forward into emotional maturity. Before we get to Genesis 12, I want to share you something that I found interesting this week. So in getting ready for today's sermon, I came across what I think is absolutely fascinating research in the field of neuroscience. And you're like, I'm already tuned out. Don't do that. Uh, so there's this whole new discipline that is coming up over the past 10 years or so called epigenetics. And epi, which means um, above or on, genetics, your genes. And so think like, put on your genetic code. And one of the leading 
leading scientific researchers in epigenetics is a woman by the name of Dr. Rachel Yehuda. She's a, a scientist, a professor, a scholar in New York City. And she did this study, there's a TED Talk on it you can watch on YouTube, where she, a few years ago, studied Holocaust victims. And she wanted to see, did living through the Holocaust, those who survived, did it affect anything about their biology? Did it affect anything about their genetic code or their DNA, anything like that? And what she found was in this study was that every single survivor of the Holocaust had the exact same stress hormone in their bodies. Now that's like, okay, understandable, right? You've lived through a very incredibly suffering, traumatic, sorrowful experience. But what was really surprising about her research is that she found the exact same stress hormone in their kids and in their grandkids. The exact same stress hormone was found in the people that lived through it, their kids and their grandkids. So here's a person who's shaped profoundly by a distinct experience of suffering and pain and hardship, but that has some amount of genetic effect on their generations to come, to the second and the third. Now, in some ways, Dr. Yehuda's research was very shocking, right? It kind of rocked the world. People were like, we don't know how we feel about this. Is it true? Is it not? She's doing a backup study now on those who survived 9-11. And she's finding a lot of the same uh, results and a lot of the same conclusions. And so scientifically, it's astonishing. But anecdotally, I think we would all say, yeah, we know. We know this reality, and that is this. Our present is shaped by our past. We all anecdotally know that, right? This is why we all laugh when we see the progressive commercial that says, we can't keep you from becoming your parents. We have sayings, right? Like father, like son. Like mother, like the apple does not fall from, from the tree. Our present is shaped by our past. Or to put it another way, who you are is shaped by where you come from. And by past, I mean two things. I mean, first, your life, right? That's a part of where we come from, the experiences that we've had, where we've grown up, our background, our socioeconomic status, our race, our culture, all of that. But I also mean a step past that, and that is your family of origin. Your family of origin has drastic effects on who you are today. If you've been married for any length of time, you know that one of the leading sources of conflict in your marriage is you were raised one way and I was raised another way and now we're fighting, <laughs> right? Our present is shaped by our past. This has profound impact, as I want to show us today, on our spiritual and emotional life with God. So as we think about how to move forward into emotional health, one of the necessary steps is that we must go back into our past and into our family of origin. We must see it, we must own it, and we must ask God to redeem it in order to move forward. But here's the fascinating thing, at least for me, this is not just a science thing that tells us we have to do that, or an anecdotal thing, it's actually a Bible thing. That's where we get to Genesis chapter 12. What I want to do is I want to show us the story of the family of Abraham. And I want to trace for us a pattern that we see from Abraham all the way down to Joseph of generational patterns. So we're going to start in Genesis 12. We're going to flip around a bunch. We won't read all 38 chapters, I promise. Genesis chapter 1, we'll start in Genesis 12. We'll start in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God shows up to this seemingly random guy named Abram who we know later becomes Abraham. And he says, hey, I'm going to bless you. 
I'm going to seal myself to you, make a covenant with you. I am going to multiply your descendants, make your name great, turn you and your line into a great family, into a great nation, that one day all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we know that's a foreshadowing that one day through the family of Abraham, Christ the Messiah will come. God takes on flesh through the line of Abraham, through which all who believe will receive salvation. It's a, a beautiful, wonderful, wondrous promise. Skip down a few verses. It goes bad on most right away. Genesis 12, verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. Mark that if you're a type that likes to underline, mark famine in Egypt, okay? That's kind of the setting. Well, that's going to come into play at the very end. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, who becomes Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. Sounds good, complimenting his wife, awesome, not so much. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me. They will let you live. It was a different time then. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So, Abram call, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. All right, here's what's happening here. God made Abram a promise. He said, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to multiply your offspring and descendants. I'm going to bless the entire world through you. And pre-having a single offspring, Abram immediately does not trust God. He thinks we're going to go to Egypt. They're going to think she's beautiful. They're going to want to kill me and take her as my own. So God made a promise, but I don't believe him. And because he doesn't trust God, he starts lying and deceiving at great cost to his wife and other people to self-protect. All right, hold on to that thread. It's not the only time it happens. This is a continual pattern. Skip down to chapter 20. Genesis 20, verses 1 and 2. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. It happens again. The exact same thing. Different city, different king, different time. Several years later, and still again, Abraham does not trust God, and so he has to lie and deceive to self-protect and self-advance. It's the same exact pattern, and it begins a generational pattern down through the family line of Abraham. Skip over to chapter 26. Fast forward in the story, Abraham and Sarah have a son. They name him Isaac. Isaac gets married to a woman named Rebekah. This is chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. Sound familiar? Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. 
and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Okay, notice the same exact blessing God gave to Abraham, he now repeats to his son, Isaac right? He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm committed to what I said to Abraham. I'm committed it to you. Your family is going to be great. We're going to stay on this. I'm faithful. I know that Abraham wasn't faithful. I'm faithful to you. We are going to continue on. Notice verse six. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, the exact same king in the exact same place as Genesis chapter 20 and Abraham, just several years later, his son doing the exact same thing. When Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebecca, his wife, the original Hebrew text says it's more than that. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. You're doing some stuff. How then could you say, y'all got to laugh at some of this. This is, this is too, this story is too wild for us not to breathe. Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Same exact thing. God just re-upped his promise. Hey, Isaac, same thing. Hold on. I'm going to make you into a great nation. He repeats the same exact sin of his father in the same exact place in the same exact king repeats, and it goes on and on and on. Fast forward in the story. Isaac and Rebekah have two twin boys, Esau and Jacob. The backstory for us here is that the firstborn, which is Esau, is supposed to have the inheritance from his father, Isaac. He's the one who's supposed to be uh, receiving the blessing and inheritance, but Rebekah loves Jacob more than Esau. He, she loves the secondborn more than the firstborn, and God makes this a promise right when they're born that Jacob will actually rule over his older brother. But they don't trust the promise of God. And so instead, they take matters into their own hands. They want to instead trick Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing. There's this whole backstory where he puts fur on his arms because his brother's hairy and he's not. It's very fascinating. But this is what we read in Genesis 27, 18. So Jacob went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? So he's old. He's losing his sight. He doesn't know who it is. And this is what Jacob says. I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Jacob deceives his father. He pretends he's Esau. He lies and he deceives to self-protect and self-advance. And the pattern continues. And if you know the story, uh, Jacob's story actually gets worse before it gets better. Uh, one of the meanings of the name Jacob in Hebrew is actually deceiver. He kind of becomes a little bit of a con man for a while. So not only is the generational sin being passed, it's actually getting worse. And they're doing worse things. And this is shown the clearest one more generation later. So Jacob gets married. He has 12 sons. These 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. His favorite is the 11th son, Joseph. He, to show his favoritism of Joseph, he gives him a coat with a lot of colors. You've seen the play. And Joseph's brothers hate him for some valid reasons. He's, he's prideful and he's arrogant and they do not like him because he's the favorite. They want him gone. So look at what happens. Genesis 37, 18 through 24. It says, they saw him, Joseph, from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. He was having dreams that he was going to rule over his brothers, and they're mad at him for it. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. They eventually go back to the pit. They end up selling him to a group of travelers who sell him into slavery in Egypt. He ends up in prison, and we'll kind of pause the story there. They go back to Jacob. They say, hey, he died. They show him the cloak. They rip it up. They put fake blood on it. Hey, he died. He got killed by an animal. All right, do, we'll pause the story there. Do you see the pattern? This is a family chosen by God, declared with a covenant, you will be a great blessing for all nations. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your descendants. You will be great, and I will use you in a powerful way that one day through your line, Christ the Savior will come as salvation for all who believe. And yet there's a continual pattern where they don't trust God. They want to self-protect and self-advance, so they lie and they deceive. Right? Abraham lies about Sarah twice. Isaac lies about Rebekah. Jacob lies to Isaac about Esau. Jacob's sons lie about what happened to Joseph. And this, to be honest, is just one of the patterns you can trace. You could trace a whole host of sin patterns from generation to generation in Abram's family. You could trace sibling rivalry. You could trace favoritism. You could trace misogyny and abuse. You could trace violence. In other words, Father Abraham had many sons, and they were all really screwed up. <laughs> but here's the point. The world, anecdotal evidence, science, epigenetics, and the scriptures all agree your past profoundly shapes your present. Or to use the language of the scriptures and the story of the life and family of Abraham, sin will live on from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Both the consequences and suffering because of sin and the patterns, tendencies, and temptations. It's actually a theological principle for this. Theologians call this the generational judgment principle. It's often also called the generational sin principle. And it's most clearly seen in Exodus 34. If you want to turn over there, Exodus 34, God has led his people out of Egypt. He's leading them into the promised land. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. God's giving them the Ten Commandments. And this is what God says. It says, the Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's awesome, right? Steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin, merciful, gracious, notice the next part, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity or the sin of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the generational judgment principle, right? Visiting the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? <laughs> All right, what does it mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean what it just seems like it says on the surface. What the text is not saying is that you are guilty before God because of the sins of your father or your mother or your grandfather or your grandmother or anyone in previous generations in your family. All right, I don't stand before God guilty and condemned because of the sin of Lydon David Olson. That's my, my dad. In the same way that his faith in Jesus won't save me, his sin won't condemn me, okay? Apart from Jesus, I stand guilty and condemned before God, apart from Christ, because of my own sin nature and corruption inherited from my first father, Adam, the first man who sinned and who through sin entered the world. So it doesn't mean that we stand guilty because, because of the sins of our parents. Just like we're not justified by their faith, we're not guilty because of their sin. But here's what it does mean, a few things. Number one, sin has generational consequences, Sin has generational consequences. 
The story of Genesis and, I think, human experience shows us that when someone in the generational line has an impactful sin, that leads to suffering and consequences on down the family tree, right? So Jacob wants so badly to receive Isaac's blessing that he deceives and he lies and he plays on this whole thing of favoritism. He has his favorite son. His sin then leads to suffering for Joseph. All right, so the sin in a generational line is passed down in suffering and consequences. Sin has generational consequences. And I think if we're willing to be honest, we can trace this a little bit in our own lives as well, right? So for some of us, our parents got divorced. And one of them just up and left the family. And they, they bounced, they abandoned. And that, you know, has shaped you. Like, it, it has had some amount of dramatic impact on your soul. It's affected how you give and receive love, how you trust in the context of relationships, how you, uh, if you're married, how you live in your marriage and your trust dynamics there, how you're vulnerable or not vulnerable, how you push people away or not push people away. It has profoundly shaped you and had consequences. For others of us, one of our parents, our father or mother, they were abused by their father or their mother. Maybe they didn't turn around and abuse us in return, but they became distant from us emotionally. They withdrew. They pulled back. They didn't want to engage. They were emotionally distant. They were overly aggressive and full of rage, and that shaped us. So the sin of your two generations up has some amount of profound effect on you. Or maybe for some of our families, there was a sin with finances, Somebody on down the line, one, two, or three generations up, was terrible with money and made some really bad financial sin decisions, and that affected you in some way, shape, or form. There's a way in which sin has consequences of suffering passed down through generations. But the second thing it means is that sin has generational patterns. So not only does it have generational consequences, it also has generational patterns. Like Abraham and like Isaac and like Jacob and like Joseph's brothers, right? The sin apple does not fall far from the tree. So I think about um, my two-year-old Harper, right? Because she is a human, I believe that she is created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And she has value and worth and dignity and meaning and honor. I believe all of those things. But also, because of the doctrine of sin, I also believe that she is born corrupted, that her nature is bent away from God and towards destruction, towards the things of the world, towards sin, but not bent in, in just a generic sense, bent in a specific sense. Why? Because of the family line she's in. I think that her, I think the Bible would teach us that her sin nature is bent specifically because I'm her dad, because her mom is her mom, because of her grandpa and her grandma and her papa and her honey. I think it shaped her in a particular way. And I think we see this in our own lives, right? Like how many of us, myself included, grow up saying, man, when I get older, I am never going to be like my parents. Like when I grew up, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to respond that way. I'm never going to be that. I'm never going to go that way. And then we find as we get into adulthood, the bent of our hearts pulls us more and more into the direction of the sin of our generations ahead, right? So how many of us grew up with a dad who was a workaholic, and emotionally distant, and, and absent, and just never present, never there with us, never spoke his love over us, and we just said, I'm never going to be that way, and then we enter into our 20s, and our 30s, and our 40s, and now all of a sudden, we're like, I can't put work down, and I can't pull back, and I'm angry, and I'm rageful, and I'm not expressing love to my friends or my family around me. Or how many of us grew up with moms who are overbearing and perfectionistic, and they 
They just made it feel like, whether explicitly or implicitly, that we had to perform in order to earn their love. And we said, I'm never going to be that way. I'm never going to act that way. I'm never going to be turned into that. And now as we get older and into adulthood, it's like, man, everybody else has this unmeetable standard that I place on their lives. Or I have an unmeetable standard I put on my life. And suddenly we see ourselves repeating the sins of our parents. Or how many of us grew up with dads who, when work or life got stressful, they reached for the bottle. We know that their dad reached for the bottle, and their dad reached for the bottle, and now maybe the bottle's our thing, or maybe it's not. Maybe we just find within us this sin pull of going, okay, it just seems like the pattern in my family is to always reach for some sort of vice to relax or to have comfort or to breathe. And I see the sin-bent pattern of my heart going in the same direction as the generations before me. There's a way in which our sin nature is particularly bent based on our family of origin. I love the way that Pastor Pete Scazzaro puts it. He says this, he says, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. So the point of the generational judgment principle, the point of Exodus 34, is not that God will punish you for your dad's sin or your mom's sin or your grandpa's sin, but that the odds are that the sin on your family of origin lives on in you in some form of imprint on your soul, whether it be the consequence or the suffering or the pattern or the temptation. In some way, the sins of the generations ahead of you have shaped you in a particular way. Or if I can put the kind of two points in this way, a summary way, it would be this. We all carry the sin from the past into the present. We all carry the sin from the past into the present. Sin lives on from one generation to the next to the next. Both the ways that sin has been done to us, the sins that we have done, the sins just kind of done around us or in our family tree. All of that has been brought into our present from our past, from our family of origin, and it has shaped us into particular ways. And the problem in the invitation that I'm about to get to with emotional health is that we have to stop and go, okay, as I'm entering into my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, how do I actually see it, own it, and let the Lord redeem it so I can move forward into health? That's the question of going back to go forward. We all carry this in from the past into the present. And the question for us is this, are we going to carry it into the future? We all carry the sin from our past into the present. Are we going to carry it into the future? And this is where I love the beautiful third reality of Exodus 34, and that's this. The Lord redeems generational sin. The Lord redeems generational sin. Look back at Exodus 34 with me. Let's get Bible nerd for just a second. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Notice, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, you might notice in your Bible, there is one in mind, a footnote when it says thousands. And if you go looking at that footnote, it should say something like, or to the thousandth generation. All right, do you, none of us have physical copies. That's fine. It's a footnote. You can go look at it later. What the, what the author and the English translator is trying to do is to help us as readers thousands of years later, not miss what Moses, the original author of Exodus, is trying to do. And what he's doing is this ancient Jewish kind of idiom and comparative device. And so either you need to put thousands, you need to put generations where he says thousands, or you take generations out where he says third and fourth, because he's doing this old comparison technique where he says, okay, this is thousands and this is third and fourth. And the best way to think about it is like a scale, all right? So, so think about one of those like old school scales where you put one and then it balances. You know what I'm talking about? You guys get in the picture when I do this? Cool. 
So what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, okay, there is a tension between the justice and love and mercy of God, right? There's a tension throughout the scriptures. God is just and has righteous wrath for sin and sinners, and yet he is merciful. But what he's trying to do by comparing thousands and third and fourth is going, okay, his judgment for sin, for the iniquity of parents goes third and fourth, but his mercy goes to the thousands. So it's like that. It's like it's not even close. It's not even on the same radar how much more the mercy of God extends into our lives than his judgment. So yes, generational sin is big, and it affects us, and it plagues us, and its consequences, and its suffering, and its patterns sit on our lives, and we have to deal with it. But he says, here's the good news. God's mercy extends to the thousands. It doesn't even compare. It's not even close. The scale breaks. It's not even like you can see the scale. It just breaks. The chain snaps. It's not even on the same playing field. And so here's the good news. I gave a bunch of examples of how it affects us. Let me give you the good news of it. So God looks at us, and he says, hey, I keep steadfast love for thousands, and I'm merciful, and I'm gracious, and so I know that your dad was an angry man. And I know that he never expressed his love for you. And I know that he was full of rage and he lashed out at the smallest things. And I know that as you're getting older, you see that same rage in your heart. But I'm a gracious and merciful God. And he looks at us and he says, hey, I know your mom was the most overbearing perfectionist you've ever experienced. And I know explicitly or implicitly, she made you feel like you were never going to be enough. And I know that you've got some kids now, and you're feeling like you're doing the same thing to them. And you are wrecked with guilt and with shame that you're repeating the same patterns you said you were never going to do. But I am a gracious and merciful God. And I know you've got history with your family that your dad reached for alcohol and your grandfather reached for it and your great-grandfather reached for it. And I know that you see this pull towards every vice on the earth to just try to get some comfort when you're stressed. And I know that you're scared and you're terrified of what you're going to become if you run the route of those before you. And yet I am a gracious and merciful God. Steadfast love for thousands. For thousands. So the question for us is, are we going to be willing to go with the Lord to our past? Are we going to be willing to stop with God and to say, all right, Lord, let's go. Let me see my life. Let me see the sin that I've done, the sin that's been done to me. Let me see the suffering. Let me see the family of origin. Let's go into all of it because I know your steadfast love is greater and your mercy is more and your grace is never ending. So here's what I want to do. I just want to chart kind of an applicable path for us into that. I'm going to hit them quick. I just want to give you what this might look like for you. Just kind of a blueprint of a journey. And then we'll end by finishing the story of Abraham's family. Five ways, five kind of steps to take to go back. We'll hit them real quick. Number one, see your past. See your past. Step one is to take a good hard look at both your individual past and your family of origin, to just be willing to be honest about what you've done, what's been done to you, what's been done in your family, the marks, the scars. Uh, two really just helpful tools for this. This is not a shameless plug, but it is. Uh, if you want to start taking this journey, you've got to go to Redemption tomorrow night. Uh, 6.30 at the ministry center, like that's the goal of redemption is to wade with you and God into your story. 
and into how he wants to redeem it. Uh, so go to that, sign up. The second tool uh, is one that um, you may not have heard of before, maybe you have. It's called the Genogram. It's G-E-N-O-Gram. Uh, it's from genes and then gram, like a map out of that. We're going to have this tool available for you on our sermon series page, citizenscharlotte.com. It's going to just kind of walk you through how to map out your family of origin and to start looking for patterns. How was I shaped good and righteously? How was I not shaped? What are the kind of the, the, the patterns and tendencies that I see in my family of origin? I did this a few years ago, um, and it was so helpful because as I was kind of charting back through uh, the Olson family line, I started to see dynamics that I see in myself, and some are not good. So one of the kind of tendencies in the Olson family through three and four generations is perfectionism. Like we're just a family of like, you get straight A's, you go to the best college, this is what you do. And that's just my family. And I see a lot of those patterns in me, workaholism, anger and rage. Uh, my grandfather was an angry man. His dad was an angry man. My dad had, had some time uh, before the Lord profoundly changed him a few years ago where most of my life he was an angry man. Uh, alcoholism runs rampant in my family, just all across the board up through the generations. And so I saw a lot of bad. I also saw a lot of good. Um, most every generation up on both sides of the family, the spouses were faithful to each other. Like they just were married for a long time until one of them passed away. And it's just this beautiful chance to see God's redemptive grace in that. Um, a lot of them were rooted. They had one job and lived in one town for their entire lives, which I can feel a deep desire in my heart to do similarly. I want to be here in Charlotte at Citizens for a long time doing the same thing. And so it was just cool to see like, all right, Lord, show me the brokenness and how I see that in myself and the beauty, which leads to number two. So we see our past. That tool is going to be online for you to work through. So we see our past, and then two, we own our past, both the good and the bad. I got to be really clear here, both the good and the bad. Now, in a room this size, I don't know all of your stories. I don't. I don't know all of the ins and outs of the suffering you've gone through and the sin of your family, and so I don't presume to know that or presume to want to make a value statement on it. I know that for some of us, it was 50-50. For some of us, it was like 95% good, 5% bad. For others of us, 95% bad, 5% good, if even that. So I don't know all of your suffering, but here's what I do know is that there are evidences of God's deep grace in your past, and I know that because you're in this room right now. So I know that there's something, tiny, maybe, but something. I love the way that uh, Pastor John Tyson talks about it. He says this, he says, my, excuse me, my story reveals the conflict between the tyranny of the world and the wonder of God's grace. Not everybody's story. To differing degrees, sure, absolutely, but the tyranny of the world and the wonder of God's grace. And so let me just encourage you, in love, you have to own both the good and the bad. And it's just this moment in our culture right now, and I get it, and I'm for it, and I've been through counseling, and I've worked through a lot of the issues of my father, but dad bashing is just like the thing right now. And I know that a lot of us have been deeply marked by our fathers in some very profoundly suffering ways. I know that, and so I'm not, I'm really not trying to belittle your story. I'm just trying to encourage you that at some point we also have to own our own part and role in some of the suffering and sin of our hearts. Okay? So, yes, do the deep work, own the bad, stare it down with community, with God. You got to be able to see, okay, this is off about my dad or about my mom or about my family of origin. You got to own all of that. And you have to be able to see the good and praise God for it. And you have to be able to own your role in it as well. And you got to see all of it in order to actually move forward into health. Does that make, we good? We're tracking? Okay. Number three, these are quick. Bring others into it. You don't want to walk this alone. The genogram, if you choose to do it, it's not like a five-minute at community group this Tuesday night thing. It's like hours and phone calls and days. 
So do that work with the Lord and then bring somebody into it. Bring your community into it. Bring your, fa- your friends into it. Bring your believing family. We don't want to do this alone. That's all of next week what we're going to talk about. Number four, allow God to redeem your past. Do all the steps we talked about weeks one through three. Bring your heart before the Lord. Invite him into the journey. Say, God, I'm not going to hide this from you. I need you to redeem it, to work it, to change it. And then number five, by the power of the Holy Spirit, work to change. By the power of the Holy Spirit, work to change. Just say, God, I I want this generational pattern that I see. I want it to end at my generation. Like, God, by the power of your spirit, I just want to be the one that says, Lord, no more. Would you help me? We're going to stumble. There's ways that our hearts are bent. Absolutely. But just being able to say, God, by the power of your spirit, would you help this go? This was true for four generations, and it stopped in 2022. God, would you just work that work of redemption in my heart? Would you just do that? Would you change me? Would you change the trajectory of my family? So that's the invitation for us today. We must go back to go forward. And really, I think what's beautiful is if you look at the life of Joseph, this is a lot of what happens and the steps he actually takes. So it gets bad in Egypt for him. He gets accused of lying. He gets accused of trying to sleep with somebody's wife. He gets thrown in prison. Some way, shape, or form, because of God, he ends up interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh's like, this guy's crazy. He promotes him to second in charge in all of Egypt. Like this crazy story of beauty and God's redemptive work. There's a famine in the land. If you remember where we started in Genesis 12, there's a famine. Joseph's brothers come to Egypt. They don't know it's him. They just know they're talking to some high up Egyptian official. And they're like, hey, there's no grain. We need grain. Will you give us grain? And it's Joseph. And they don't know it's Joseph. And Joseph has this moment where he's like, all right, am I going to continue the sin patterns of my family? Like, am I going to deceive them? Am I going to mistreat them? Am I going to say, no, you were bad to me. You sold me into slavery, which he could do. Or is he going to work with the Lord to redeem it? And look at what he says. The very end of Genesis, the book, verse or chapter 50, verse 19 through 21. Look at what he says. He says, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear from I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He didn't hide it. He sees it. He owns it. Hey, no, you did evil. <laughs> Let's just be clear. You put me in a pit. You sold me. This was bad. This was wrong. He doesn't gloss it over. Hey, like, guys, dap it up. No big deal. Slavery, whatever. No, like, he owns it. He says, this was wrong. And then he asked the Lord to redeem it. He says, no, but God was doing something else. You meant it for evil. You tried to harm me. You were trying to follow this pattern of our family. But no, it's different now. God redeemed it. And then he goes one step further and says, I'm going to work to change it. And I'm going to change the pattern. And I'm going to provide for you and everybody else. I'm going to care for you because of God's redemptive work in my life. And ultimately, God redeems the family line of Abraham. There's a bunch of ups and downs along the way, but ultimately we know that God is faithful to his promise that he makes in Genesis 12. And one day, through the line of Abraham came a Messiah. Jesus the Christ, God took on flesh, the ultimate plan of redemption for God. That's what we celebrate every single Sunday when we gather. So we're going to move into our time of communion. We're going to remember that God is faithful to his promises. And then even in the midst of our ups and downs of our family and the generational sin, consequences and patterns, that God remains faithful to his people. And he said, yeah, this family line of Abraham is broken. And one of the beautiful things about the Bible, man, we, uh, we've just started reading 
the Jesus Storybook Bible with, with Harper um, a couple times a week. And this, it intros, it says, the Bible is not a list of rules. The Bible is a list of characters that mess up to show us we need Jesus. I just love that about the story of Abraham, right? Here's God promising, hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then they royally screwed up a bunch for 38 chapters. And God says, I'm going to stay faithful. And through your line, I'm going to send what you need, which is a savior and a redeemer. That's what we get to celebrate every single Sunday. We get to take communion as a way of reminding ourselves that God is good and that he redeems all things, including our past. And he sets us free and calls us his own and wipes us clean from all the shame and guilt. And so if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion with us, not because we don't like you or don't uh, want you to participate, but rather because you'd be saying this is true about you and it's just not yet. But rather than take communion, I invite you to take Christ. I'll be down front afterward. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and experience this freedom and redemption offered in the good news of the gospel. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'll be down front. But for all who are in Christ, when the night he was betrayed, Jesus took some bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And every time we eat this little wafer, we're remembering the body of Christ given on the cross to to make us right with God, that Christ was broken so that we would not be in our sin. And yet we are declared righteous through faith. So church, take and eat. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. And every time you eat the bread, you drink the cup, you're announcing, celebrating, remembering my death until I return. And so every time we drink this little bit of juice, we are remembering and celebrating and reminding our souls that there is no shame and condemnation in Christ Jesus for any of our past, any of our story, any of our family of origin, that we are washed clean and made new through faith in Christ and his shed blood alone. So church, take and drink. Band's going to come up in just a minute. We got some folks in the back, our prayer team, who would love to pray with you and for you. We're going to worship. We're going to celebrate Jesus together. Let me pray for us. God, we, man, we need you. God, we need you. Our our stories are, are so full of brokenness and pain and God, I know in a a room this size that there's immense amounts of family of origin hurt and suffering. God, and I don't know it, but as we learned about the past couple of weeks, God, you do. And you're not pulling back from us. You don't run from us. You don't point the finger of condemnation at us. You don't shame us, God. You invite us by the power of your spirit to experience redemption. And freedom to be washed clean, to be made new in the power of the gospel, to be forgiven, to be declared righteous and holy, to, to be given a new name and a new family, to be declared, okay, yeah, that's your past, that's your family of origin, that's what you've done, that's, that's what's been done to you, but you have a new identity in Christ Jesus. And you declare over us a new name. And you declare over us that we are forgiven and we're sealed and we're bought and we're sons and we're daughters and we're friends. Jesus. God, and so I pray that you would help us do the hard work. God, if we don't look at the past, God, how do we heal from it? God, and so I pray you'd give us courage that only comes from you, courage that only comes from your spirit, kindness and grace to to lock arms together and with you and to step forward by the power of your spirit, God, to say, okay, I'm going to stare down my past. I'm going to own it, the good and the bad. And I'm going to ask you, Lord, would you redeem it? Would you set me free? Would the consequences no longer plague me? Would the patterns no longer be true? God, would you change the story of my family through only what can change it, which is your redemptive work and might? We need you, Lord. We need you desperately for this work.
want to be a people who trust you. We want to be a people who love you, God, and we need your spirit. Help us to believe the gospel enough to do something, to trust you. We love you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen.